So we are still sort of at the beginning of this series starting point. So real quickly before we continue on, we'll do sort of a brief recap of what happened last week. Um, everything that is has a starting point. You have a starting point. Some of you were started on purpose. Some of you came along by accident, but we're really glad that you're all here. And anything that exists at some point didn't exist, so it had a starting point. But what we don't think about many times is that faith has a starting point as well. What that, that starting point is, you know, you may be something that you learned in temple or a mosque or at a church, but faith has a starting point. So um, we were handed as children, many of us, and let me just take a quick poll. How many of you were raised in some type of religious background? It may be mosque, temple, uh, church. Let me see. Well, that's quite a few of us. And, uh, you know, you may be a person that, you know, it may have started with a conversation with a priest or a pastor, but you also may be a person that, um, you know, you, you didn't have that background. And just as you got older, maybe you headed off to college, just from different things that you read, conversations with friends, things that your teacher said, you sort of cobbled together a certain, a certain thing that you believe about the world or about God. And some of you may be at the place, and this is fine, where, you know, you've, you've experienced life and you've, you've become an adult and you either didn't have a faith background at one time and you've, you've just at the point where you don't believe at all. You would say, I consider myself either an agnostic or an atheist, and that's fine as well. And, and sometimes that has a starting point. There are, there are a lot of people that I talk to that they grew up in a church setting and, you know, maybe they had some bad experience at church they had some really bad experience with some Christians, and they just came to the point where, you know, I, I just don't think that I believe this thing at all. And uh, that may be where you are. But uh, all of us that, that grew up in, in church, and especially the Christian faith, but really whatever religion that is your background, we were sort of given a faith framework or a foundation for our faith. And uh, all basic religions say something to the fact that God is good, that, uh, you know, God will do good things for good people. He rewards good. He punishes evil. And that, you know, you can talk to God. God will listen to you. And God will answer prayer. And so we have, you know, some sort of, of framework like this. We were taught things like um, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. You remember that song? What's the rest of it? Red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in his sight. I actually have a niece um, she's older now. I guess she's about 30. Wow, how old does that make me? But uh, she was here last night. She's pregnant. And they, I guess they do this thing now where they have the gender reveal party or something. This is an entirely new thing. We just said, hey, it's a boy. Leave us alone. You know, that's, but um, but she, she used to sing the song when she was real little. We'd babysit her. And this has nothing to do with the message. This is just a sudden random thing that I remembered. She would sing, Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious to my wick. <laughs> and we were like, what? They're precious to my wick. We have no idea what she ever mean, meant by that, but we could not, no, they're precious in his sight. No, they're precious to my wick. So I don't know what that means. It doesn't matter. But the, the, tr the trouble is that many of us, when we, when we get into adulthood, we, we begin to say, you know, yeah, Jesus loves little children of the world, but it seems to me there's like, there's a lot of little children in this world that Jesus maybe doesn't love. And sometimes you, you thought, well, and I'm one of those kids that maybe Jesus doesn't love because I prayed and prayed and this didn't happen. And 
I, I experienced this evil thing, and God, I thought you were good. I, I thought you would reward people that did good things, and I did my best to do good things, and bad things happen. And how do I reconcile all the evil that's in this world with the fact that you're supposed to be such a good God? And there becomes, as we get older many times, a gap between what we were taught as children and what we, what we were supposed to believe and what we actually experience as adults. It could be a traumatic event that, that occurred, or it could just be over time, little by little, life happened, and just sort of your faith wore away. And it's, it's not that maybe you don't not believe any of it now, but you're just not sure that all of that is really like you were told. And um, so, so what we decided to do is because that affects so many adults. Either they did not have a faith background at all, and there's just something inside of them. And, and, and almost everybody that I talk to, and I talk, I, I love, love, love to talk to people who would not call themselves Jesus followers, who, are, who would say, you know, I'm an atheist or an, I'm an, an agnostic. But um, almost everyone, when, when you really boil it down, they either sort of think that there's a possibility or they hope. They hope that maybe... Maybe all of this isn't just for nothing. Maybe all this huge universe and, and you know, it, it's not just about I, I suddenly came from nothing and I, I live and I go to work and I work for the weekend where I, I have a beer and I go to a movie and I play a little golf on Saturday and then I go back to work and I, I hope that someday I can retire and play golf and go fishing and then it's over. And what was really the meaning to that? Sometimes when you really start to think about it, you either... You either know in, in, instinctively inside or you at least hope so, that, there, that there's got to be something more than this. And that may be where you are. You're just hoping that I say something that will maybe spark a faith in you or perhaps if you've one of, the, one of these people that uh, you, you've had a framework for faith in either life or some bad experiences you had in the church with Christians or a marriage that falls apart, different things that happen to us, to everyone in life. It's just worn away your faith. You're hoping there'll be something to reignite that. That's what this series is about. That we said we want to push the restart button on your faith. So, so what we said is we want to ask the question, what if we'd never heard any of this? What if we'd never been to church, mosque? What if we never talked with that priest? What if we had never had this framework at all? What would be the starting point for our faith? Where would we start? And we said this, that, quote, unquote, the Bible says is not an adequate starting or returning point for many adults. If you say, you know, I, I want to restart my faith, and I start with, well, okay, the Bible says, you would be, oh, hold up. You know, the Bible says, that's not really where I want to start. And let me just say something out loud that many of you think, and, and that, that's this one reason that I love, love, love to talk to people that are either seekers or people that have been, uh, I, I have some guys that I talk to and online and in person, and they would consider themselves atheists, but they know the Bible almost better than I do. And, and they've read it. And when you start talking, the Bible says, and some of you think this when you hear somebody say the Bible says, let me just go ahead and say it out loud. The Bible also says, there's some parts back there, especially in the Old Testament, that guys like me that stand on a stage and, and proclaim a certain truth every day, we, we'd rather you not look at. Because we know that uh, you know, many times you look back there in the Old Testament, you see some things that people are doing, some things that it looks like God is doing, and you're thinking, you know, you know God's not very Christian. <laughs> Maybe God should consider becoming a Christian because it's like, wow, I don't understand. I don't understand how 
these things apply, and I'm supposed to obey the Bible, but they told me to read the Bible, and I read some things back there, and boy, it just really confuses me, and I don't understand. So we said that the Bible says it's not an adequate start, but the good news is that the Bible says was never intended to be the starting point for the Christian faith. Now, I believe that the Bible is indeed, it's inspired by God. I believe there's great misunderstanding on what its intent and purpose was and, and how to, go, to approach it and understand it. But after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the first 350 years, the church would gather and they could not open their Bible and say the Bible says because there wasn't a Bible. So how did people in the, the earliest, earliest Christians, how did they come to such amazing, amazing faith? Faith that actually dwarfs ours. The things that they were willing to go through because they were convinced that some Jewish carpenter had risen from the dead and was the key to not only this life but eternal life. How did they come to that faith? What was the starting point for their faith? And we said it all boils down to that it's a question. The starting point is not whether or not is all the Bible exactly true. How about all the contradictions in the Bible? You know, the Bible isn't scientific. It disagrees with scientific fact. You know, were Adam and Eve naked? Or is that just to keep our attention? Could Jonah actually live in a whale for three days and three nights? All those things are interesting and things we, we discuss a lot. But that's not the starting point. The starting point is a very, very simple question. And this is what we said last week, and this sort of catches us up. Is the question was, who is Jesus? If you're going to, and, and that's what we're mainly talking about. We'll talk about other religions a little. But mainly we're saying, what's the starting point for the Christian faith? If, you, if you're saying, you know, I'm considering becoming a Jesus guy. I'm considering becoming a, a, a Christian. Where do I start? Well, the question you have to ask, first of all, is what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? What did he say about himself? And is he really who he says he is? If he is, that indeed changes everything. Now, we're going to sort of set that question off to the side. And, uh, and we'll answer that. We're going on to something uh, today that we, we have to sort of pass through this filter in order to, to uh, get to what the real starting point is to this relationship with God. But if you, if you missed last week or the week, couple weeks before, you can go at any time. Go to stonebrook.tv. That was just a real quick review, and you can catch the entire message from last week. So what we're going to talk about this morning is uh, we're just going to talk about uh, it, it's one, one word. And this one word makes us very uncomfortable. It's a word that we don't just use in everyday vernacular. It's something that you usually don't talk around about the dinner table. You don't talk about it with your friends. It's a word that basically has sort of disappeared a little bit in our society uh, just because it's sort, of, it's sort of heavy. And it's this little three-letter word right here. Sin. Just go ahead and say that word. See, you can't even say it with a happy voice. You're like, Sin. And it's a word sometimes that scares us because we have memories of growing up in a church where they beat us over the head with a Bible and they made us feel like we were the scum of the earth. We actually had a hymn. You know what hymns are? You remember hymns? We used to play a little game. I don't know if you guys did this in church. My church was, it was either extremely, extremely boring or so wild and crazy. I was raised Pentecostal that you like wanted to hide underneath the pews. It's like, oh, here she comes. Duck. She's jumping over the pews. I've seen people jump pews. I've seen people get up and run across the top of pews. 
I could write a book. Someday I need to write a book. My crazy church, that's that. But we used to play a game with the hymnal where you go through and you read the, the title of the hymn, and then you add the phrase, under the pew, after it. Just kept yourself awake in church. We don't have a hymnal, so you can't do that. And I don't know why I mentioned that. But anyway, we have some bad memories of the word sin because maybe of our religious upbringing. And, and it's just not a word that we use. In our society, this word sin is almost exclusively a theological term. You only use it when you're talking about God. You don't usually, you know, say to your children, now, now Bobby, you've sinned against your mother. We're going to have to talk about this. You know, you usually don't go... Your boss doesn't call you in, say, you know, come into my office. We're going to have to talk about your sins. When the policeman stops you, you know, you, you ran the red light or you, you rolled through the stoplight or whatever, and he pulls you over, yeah, officer, is there a problem? Yes, you're a sinner. You rolled through, you know, no, nobody says that. You don't, here's a sin citation. You need to repent of what you need to do. No, it's, it's not a word that we normally use in society. Sin, it's so heavy, it makes us uncomfortable. But what we've done is, in fact, like if I came in here, well, let's do this first. We've replaced it with a, with a different word. And do you, can anybody guess, what, what is the word that we've used to replace, instead of sin, we say this word? Offense. What? Mistake. We say, you know, it wasn't a sin, it was a mistake. It, you know, it, it was just something I, I, I didn't know. It, it, a mistake speaks of insufficient knowledge. I, I was dumb. I, I didn't know. Thank, thanks for giving me the knowledge now. I just didn't have enough knowledge for that. I'll make, you know, I'll, I'll do that better in the future. So, um, and you can go ahead and put that up there. A mistake, insufficient knowledge. It just says, it's, it's not that I'm, I, I'm wrong necessarily. I just didn't know. And, you know, the difference is, if I came in here, and I hadn't, you know, we hadn't already started the message or whatever, and, I, and we're not going to do this, don't raise your hand or anything, but if I said, let me, let me see a show of hands of how many of you have ever made a mistake. Well, every hand would go, yeah, I've made, you don't have to, some of you are guilty, I can see you raise your hand. No, you don't have to raise your hand. You know, you'd, you'd raise your hand. In fact, you know, you'd get sort of judgmental about the person that didn't raise their hand. You'd what, you're perfect? You make a mistake. You, I'm sure you made a mistake by not raising your hand. No, every, everybody makes a mistake. Every, every hand would go up. Yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect, you know. But, now no context. Or maybe we weren't even in church. We're just like at a Kiwanis meeting or something. And I just walk in and say, hey, just before we start, how many of you have sinned? How many of you have sin in your life? Well, you know, like the front row would be, is anybody, is anybody else doing you know, because sin, that, that's, there's something deeper. There's something heavy about that word. So, so it's, we, we sort of replace it with mistake. A mistake is something that you make on a, on a math test. A mistake is something where Siri tells you to turn right at the next stoplight, and you think she doesn't know what she's talking about, and then she sort of gets an attitude with you. I don't know if your phone is... Okay, that's, it's, it, it seems like... It. Okay, make a U-turn at the next street. Okay, I'm a, well, see, you made a mistake. I didn't know. I, I, I'll, I'll turn around and do that now. But um, the, the trouble with just substituting that word, word mistake is that we know, somewhere deep down inside, we know that there's, that there's something more to that. And, and I use the word we on this next one because it, it applies to me too. And just be honest. Come on, come on. 
Sometimes we make mistakes on purpose, right? Do you ever make mistakes? I'm not asking for a show of hands, but we intend to make this mistake. And here's another one. Sometimes we plan our mistakes. Some of you have purchased airline tickets for your next mistake. You got a group of your friends together and discussed exactly how you were going to accomplish your next mistake. Well, what do you call it when we're planning our mistakes? A premeditated mistake? Come on. Something that you ahead of time decided, I'm going to do this. You, you've heard, you know, what about people that make mistakes and we do it? We make mistakes over and over and over again. You turn on the television and you see a politician, a preacher, someone, a high official in the military perhaps. He's got about 12 microphones in front of him and he's confessing to a four-year mistake. You know, I've made some mistakes. Yeah, you had an affair with six women. Over the past four years, oops, this is like Britney Spears, oops, I did it again, no. That's something you planned, you were aware, you did it on purpose. And we know inside, when you hear, see, when it's you, it's hard to see that in the mirror. But when you see the guy standing in front of the 12 microphones and he's a politician, and he was like, oh, I I didn't know. I didn't know the white stuff that I was sucking up my nose was anything bad for me. If I would have known, I wouldn't have done it, oops. Sorry. No, we know. We know there's, there's something deeper to it than that. There's something deeper in him or her, and there's something deeper in us that, that we keep doing these mistakes over and over and over. But the thing is, with a mistake, how, how do you fix a mistake? What do you do with a mistake? You don't do it again. You, you correct it. If you, if you got the, the question wrong on the algebra test because these crazy people don't actually want to know the answer, they just want you to show your work, you correct that. You do something different next time. Thanks for the information. Siri, sorry you got an attitude with me. I'll turn right every time you tell me from now on, even though you've led me to some terrible places by following your instructions. I'll listen to you. I'll correct that mistake. But the, the thing is that you know You you don't need me to stand up here to tell you, but you know that you've tried some of those mistakes that you keep doing over and over again, some of the mistakes that I keep doing over and over again. You've tried to correct it, but you can't, for some reason, correct you. What is that? What is that on the inside that you try? You know I need to do a certain thing, and you try, but you just can't do it. Or you're in the middle of doing something right. For example, something I've struggled with for many, many years of my life. If I stand a profile, you can tell a little bit what it is. I love, especially this time of year. You know, we're talking a little bit about faith in God, but if it helps you any to believe in God, this actually helps me to believe in, in, in Satan. Is that Reese's at this time of year, they make those little Halloween eggs or whatever they are with the extra peanut butter. Oh, Lord, help us all. And the trouble is, I don't just like the Reese's. Number one, I like the smaller ones. And Walmart occasionally will have like a whole bag of the smaller ones. And the trouble is, I don't just like to eat them. I have to have a Pepsi chaser. It's like my vice. But, you know, Reese's and a Pepsi. And the, the more you do that, you know, that, well, things happen to you that shouldn't happen to you. But, but so you decide, because the Bible, unfortunately, here's, I mean, here's something. And don't get, you know, if, if you have one of these, it's not necessarily. Some people have one of these and they eat perfectly. They, 
These are hard to get rid of the closer you get to 50, it seems like. But, uh, you know, there's times where I've decided, okay, I sort of believe that I should eat healthy. The Bible says that, New Testament says that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to take care of it. And the Bible has so much to say about gluttony, I tore those pages out, but they keep coming back. So, I'm going to stop this. And, you, and like for a week, you go through that first awkward two or three day period where you feel like you're going to die. Your eyes are, they're out here somewhere. And like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Just give me a sip. Is that Pepsi you have? Can I have just a drink? You feel like, can I bum? I'm just like bumming a smoke or something here. But then after, you know, after seven, eight, nine days, and you're like, you're doing good. And whatever your deal is, you may decide, you know, I haven't had a drink in 10 days. I, maybe, you know, we, we've been really bad and dead. I haven't been to the mall. I've got the credit cards locked away. I haven't done that for 10 days. I haven't been to those websites, you know. Some of you have a stash of your mistakes, you know, somewhere. I haven't done that for, you know, it's been two weeks. The overwhelming thought that keeps coming to you is, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I need to reward myself <laughs> with a Reese's and a Pepsi, you know? What? But here's the thing. What is that? See, it's more than just I made a mistake. There's something deeper that's going on inside of us that we try to correct it, but there's a deeper problem that is happening than just a mistake. And there's a word we use, and it's a harsh word, but we have to twist this knife just a little bit. We're, we're going somewhere. It's, it's not that you're a, mis a mistaker. It's not that I'm a mistaker. It's we are a sinner. A sinner is somebody who knows to do better, but does it anyway. You know I should do this, in fact, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote half the New Testament, struggled with this. He said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do that. It's not that we're alone by any means. It's just that in all of us, there's this thing that has to be acknowledged. Now, now Jesus talked about this, and, and Jesus, he talked about sin. He didn't talk about sin nearly as much as people think he did. It wasn't something he talked about a lot, but he did talk about it. He didn't dumb it down. But Jesus knew this fact that sin breaks relationships. You know if, you have a, if you're married or you have a relationship with your, your father or maybe your children, that when there's an offense, when there's a hurt that happens, that it severs, that it causes a separation in that relationship. But understand this, Jesus' purpose when he talked about sin was always restoration, not condemnation. His purpose wasn't for you to try harder. His purpose wasn't for you to feel so bad about yourself and you feel so guilty that you go out and you're trying to turn over a new leaf. But his purpose, his, his speaking about sin was always a means to an end of restoring a relationship. Now the question is, what is it that restores relationships? When relationships are broken, what is it that restores them. As long as you just see yourself as a mistaker and not someone that's committing an offense, you will never seek, and Jesus knew this, as long as you just see yourself as it's no big deal, you're just a mistaker, you'll never see, you'll never seek restoration or forgiveness. But here's the thing, to restore a relationship, and this is where we're going with this, to restore a relationship, there must be an acknowledgement that there was an offense. 
It's more, it's more than just, oh, I'm sorry. See, I found this out in marriage, and uh, my wife and I, Jeannie, this coming year will be married 30 years. And if you had lived with us for 30 years, you would, you would believe in God because that's just a miracle <laughs> that we are still together after 30 years. Because for about 22 to 24, Jeannie might say closer to 30, 22 to 24 years, my wife lived with a jerk. Now the trouble is, the trouble is, I didn't know I was a jerk. Some of you, here, here's a revelation for you. Some of you are jerks and you don't even know it. <laughs> I thought, I, I was living as a husband just almost exactly the way, and I thought I'd improved on it, exactly the way that my, my father uh, acted. My father's a good guy. I'm not putting down my father. But he was raised by, you know, a, a certain generation in a certain way that you're to treat and interact with women. And so I thought that I'd improved on that. I thought I'd given my wife everything that she had asked. You know, I was, she, she wanted certain things in life, so I went out and I got that. She wanted a home and wanted kids and you know, we, we, I was doing just as good as I, I thought I could do. I thought I was treating, treating her right a certain way. I thought I, thought I was doing good. And then, but we, we were constantly butt heads. And you have these arguments and, you know, and she said, well, could you do this? Well, it always, well, the reason I'm doing that is because you're doing this. Well, the reason I'm doing that is because you're doing this. And it just goes on and on and it circles round and round and goes down a vicious spiral. But eventually, and sometime, someday when we talk about marriage, maybe we'll tell the whole ugly story and you see just what a jerk I was. But what, what restored the relationship was when I finally, finally said, you know, you know this isn't working. In fact, my wife, she, she had this saying, and I think she got it maybe from Dr. Phil or something. I don't know. But she was, you know, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. Because she would say, this hurts me. And I would explain to her exactly why that doesn't hurt her. But she said, no, no, this hurts me, and I, I don't like this, and this causes me to feel unloved. And I would explain, no, you should feel loved because I'm doing this. And it just goes round and round. And finally she said, you know, I'm, I'm explaining, I'm listing out all the wonderful things that I'm doing for the 14th time, 14,000th time. And she simply said to me, how's that working for you? Well, I finally stopped and listened then. But here's, here's what began the restoration. And this, it always has to come past the point where you just say, sorry. You ever do that with your children? You, you, you tell your child something they did wrong, it's really hurt you, it's really caused a problem in the family, and they go, oh, sorry. Or you talk to your husband, ladies, and you say, no, this is really causing a problem here. It's really causing there to be a separation. And he goes, oh, sorry. And you immediately go, oh, you're sorry. Well, then, that's good. Let's just go out and have, have a supper tonight. Is everything, is the relationship restored then after sorry? No. The relationship began to be restored when it went from sorry to where I finally saw it, where my face softened, it really sunk down on the inside of me and I listened. Everybody wants to be listened, and under, listened to and understood to where I finally said, oh, wow, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm wrong. Not, I'm wrong, but you know my dad and my past, and, all, and this sort of happened to me, and I have a hard time expressing, no. Just, oh, yeah. I can, I can see where that would cause you a problem. I'm wrong. Not I'm wrong, but, you know, if you would do this, it'd make it easier. No, 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 no. 
Simply, I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. Well, that, that begins a, a, a starting place for that relationship to begin to mend and come back together. It has to come to that point before you can start loving again, before you can start being together again, whether it's a marriage couple, whether it's uh, aunt and niece, parent and child, whatever the relationship is, boss and employee, there has to come to a place where the other person acknowledges that it's, it's more than a mistake. So Jesus, when he talked about sin, Jesus didn't dumb down sin at all. In fact, he came along to, into a time where there was a group of people that uh, one, one group of people, they had sort of dumbed sin down to the point, and they were the religious leaders, to where they believed that they were doing pretty good. They believed that they were doing everything God wanted them to do. Then there was the other group of people that simply believed, um, you know, we can never reach this standard, so we're going to end up in hell anyway, but at least we'll know people. So let's party and have a good time while we're here on the earth. So that was sort of Jesus' audience. And he was talking to them one day, and, and he said this to him. He said, but I warn you, unless your righteousness or unless your goodness, the way you behave, unless your goodness is better than the goodness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, those were the religious people, they were like professional do-gooders. They were paid to be holy and righteous so they could hear from God in their eyes. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, Jesus comes along and he says, unless you're better than the best people you know, you're doomed. So they were all like, oh, man, we're toast. What's going to happen? And instead of getting them out of it, he made it a little worse. He said, now you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. And so they're like, well, you know, I got that one. At least I don't murder. You know, no, sit down, sit down, I'm not finished. He says, but I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. You know that person at your work that is sort of a suck up and a butt kisser? Would you, I allowed the first service to do this. Would you like to say butt kisser in church? Let's say that together. It just feels good to say that. You know that person that takes credit maybe for what you did? Oh, man, I hate that. And they get the promotion and you're the one that did all the work? Jesus said, if you're even angry, it's just like you murdered someone. And they're like, oh, man. Really? And he, he, he digs the knife a little deeper. He said, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. All of, especially the Pharisees. Check. I got that one. Got, no? No? Just wait. Jesus said, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust. Oh, you've got to be kidding me, Jesus. Is, is my wife here? Jesus, come on. Who doesn't do that? I mean, every once in a while, come on. Jesus said, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in his heart. But here's the thing. See, all my life I heard these things that Jesus said. What Jesus is doing is he's coming along and he's saying, you guys think this is the standard? He raises the bar so high that nobody can do it. I always thought, and people present it this way, that Jesus is, is like giving us some new commandments that we're supposed to do. And, okay, oh, there's a woman in shorts. Everybody close your eyes. Like when I was a kid on the TV, if somebody kissed on screen, my, mother, my mom and dad made me close my eyes. 
Well, that just made you, it made you want to do this. Don't laugh. I see you're laughing at me over there. Come on. Uh, and like I always had, I had to turn my head at the beer commercials. Isn't that weird? That's the kind of upbringing I had. It just makes you want a beer and kiss somebody is all it does. <laughs> In fact, the Bible says that. <laughs> Paul said, you know, I didn't want to sin until I knew I wasn't supposed to do it. <laughs> so, you know, but I, I thought people always present this, that Jesus is presenting these new commandments that we're supposed to try to live up to. No! What Jesus is doing is coming along and saying, you guys think that you're doing good? You Pharisees, religious people, you think, you think you're getting in with God by the good stuff you're doing just because you haven't killed anybody and you haven't committed adultery? No, the standard is so high you can never reach it. Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was to put the standard so high to where everybody said, we can't do it. It can't be done. And as soon as the person came to this acknowledgement, to this realization that I'm doomed, Jesus says, great, because I'm here for doomed people. In fact, I'm only here for doomed people. He said another place, he said, I'm really only here, for, he was using it figuratively, uh, a doctor is only for sick people. And Jesus says, I, I'm here for people who realize that they're sick and they need me. It's not so you can try to live up to this standard, it's so you know nobody can do this stuff. And Jesus says, yeah, now you got it. That's why I'm here to save you. When he discussed sin, it was to show us, to get us to an acknowledgement that this is the condition we're in and we can't do it. So he had those that thought they were too bad in his audience and those that thought they were good enough. They hadn't read Andy Stanley's book, How Good is Good Enough. They thought they were good enough. So Jesus, when he has this audience in front of him, he, he begins to tell him the story. And I've used this story many times. We sort of have to hurry through it. But there's, there's one little aspect of it that, that we need to mention, go through this on our way to pursuing the Christian faith. He tells the story. It's a very famous story about this. The son, he goes to his father, and I've talked about it a lot, where he goes to his father and he says, you know, I, I really wish you were dead because I want, I want the inheritance. And and you just won't die. And time is getting, you know, I'm getting old here. And I got things I want to do. And can, since you're not going ahead and die, let's just act like you're dead. And you give me my half of the inheritance now. And Jesus' audience would have gasped. <gasps> they, they would have been waiting for that father to ostracize him or, or, or excommunicate him, cast him out. But the father doesn't. He gives him the money. And so the son, he leaves town a few days later. He doesn't care anything about the father. And he goes and he, he parties it up. He buys Corvettes, and he has lots of girlfriends, and he goes out, and he does all these crazy wild things, and he loses all, the, all this money. Of course, Jesus' audience is expecting there to be retribution. Well, the son finally comes to his senses, and he decides, I'm going to go back to my father. And as he goes back to the father, you know, and, and the people in Jesus' audience would have known, okay, somehow the father represents God, and the son, that represents us. So the son comes back, and the father's waiting, but this one aspect we'll zero in on today. The son came back, and he says something to his father. He's, he said to his father, Father, I have what? I've, I've sinned. Not, well, hey, Dad, you know I'm back, and about the money, you, you know I had a good job, and things just didn't go well. My boss was sort of out for me. The, the economy was bad, and I had some friends take advantage of me. I'm sorry. No. Just three words. Father, 
I've sinned. And in fact, those three words, and that's a good question sometimes to ponder, is have you, have you ever said those three words? For some of you, you know, I, I don't know if you ever have. It's, oh, you, know, you know, I messed up, I know I messed up, and I'm not as bad, though, as this guy. And no, those three words where the son comes back and he says, Father, I have sinned. And he goes on, I've sinned against both you, both heaven and you. And then he acknowledges that there's been a, 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 a splitting. There's been a, a severance here. Our relationship has been torn apart. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And there, he, he, he has a big speech plan, but he's acknowledging, I've sinned, and I have broken this relationship. End of the story. No excuse, no ifs, ands, buts, reasons. I've sinned. But then the father, the very next word, this is one of my favorite words in the Bible. He says, but... Someday we are going to get to that series, the big buts of the Bible. But this is a big but right here. But his father said to the servants, he didn't even acknowledge the son. The father had heard everything he needed. It was music to the father's ears. Because that's what the father is after, the restoration of the relationship. And he knows that no matter how much he wants it until the other person, it's just what happened in our marriage, no matter how much Jeannie wanted that relationship to be close, there was something that was holding it back until you finally say, oh, I have sinned. The father said to his servants, and I love this first word, quick, let's do it now. There's not a payback plan. There's not, you know, well, we put you on probation for six months and see how you do. No, quick, right now. Bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and, and sandals for his feet. Wait, wait, don't you want to hear his story? No. Don't you want to know what happened to the money? No. Don't you want to know about the people he was hanging out with? And I think we need to get him some counseling because we don't want to know. Maybe we'll do counseling. Maybe we'll talk. No. For this son of mine, he was dead. No, he wasn't dead. He was dead to me. And now he's returned to life. He was lost. Well, I knew where he was. But as far as me and him together, that relationship was gone. But now he's found. This is one of my favorite lines in the entire Bible. I have a hard time reading this and not crying. So the party began. See, the difference between the way sin has been presented so many times by guys like me standing on a stage is it's been presented to, to make you feel like there's something you need to do to try to do better. If you just try harder, if you just jump higher, if you just run faster, maybe you could eventually get there. But Jesus simply talked about it because the recognition of sin paves the way to restoration. He's waiting for a celebration to happen. He's waiting with open arms, but the portal, the door, that we all have to go through to get there is to finally come to this realization and this acknowledgement that, you know, I'm, I'm more than a mistaker. This is more than just something I, I didn't know. No, there's something deeper going on. Father, I have sinned. And that's always Jesus' purpose. It wasn't to condemn us, but to restore us to relationship so the celebration can start. I just want to end with two more, two more scriptures really quickly. Give me a, about another minute or two. 
These are some of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, and we'll pick this up next week. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, the Apostle Paul said it this way. This, this is God's attitude towards sin. For God was in Christ reconciling, bringing back, not condemning the world to himself, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. If you've been told that God is mad at you and that God's holding something over your head, no, that's what the cross of Christ was for. That's what Jesus was doing here by displaying his love, by accepting the punishment of the cross. He was saying, I'm not counting this against you. Yes, you've got to come to the point where you see, oh, I'm wrong. But as soon as you do that, there's nothing else in the way. The apostle, Paul, once again, writing to the church at a town called Colossae, he said, you were dead, just like the prodigal son. He said, you were dead, but now you're alive. You were dead. You, you were separated. We, we know you're still breathing in and out. But death, in other words, the relationship has died. You know you have those relationships on the earth with, with a parent or an old friend where there used to be life there, but now there's only death because of an offense. Paul's using that to say, you know, it's sort of how it is with you and God. You were dead, separated because of your mistakes. No, because of your sins. Because there's something intrinsically wrong there. But what did God do about it? He says he canceled the record of the charges against us. There won't be a time when you get to heaven, by the way, where they open some book and you're standing outside the gate with St. Peter and you're wondering, do I get in? Do I, where, do, where do I go? There's not like a big water slide that heads down to hell on the right and, you know, a gate on the left where they say, oh, okay, you did some good things. Ooh, this is bad, you know. No. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus and, and because of what he did on the cross, it says he canceled the record of the charges against you and he took it out of the way. There's nothing in the way of you accepting Christ and coming into relationship with God anymore. He took it out of the way by nailing it to his cross. That has all been taken care of. He's just waiting for that, that realization to come along that, yeah, I need somebody to fix this because I can't do it myself. And Jesus says, great, because I'm just the guy to help you with that. I'm your savior. And we'll pick it up there next week. Now, as we leave, I'm going to pray for us. We'll be dismissed. But if, uh, you know, if, if you would like somebody, and we, we have this saying here that you can't do life alone. It's one of our, one of our core values. And so we, we want, if, if you need prayer for anything at all, you may be at the point where you're ready to take the step across that line of faith and say, yeah, I'm sort of beginning to see this. You like to talk to somebody about that, like to pray with somebody with that. Maybe there's situations in your marriage, your job, or just life in general. You just want somebody to know and be in agreement and prayer with you. Over here to the left, we have Eric and Courtney, and uh, they're available. Just after we're all dismissed, you can just sort of saunter. You're not a saunter. Saunter over there, wander over there, and they'll be glad to pray with you. So I'm going to pray with you just as a group, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for your great love to us. This is sort of a heavy subject, Lord, and, and we know that. But all of us, we, did, we didn't need me saying this to know that there's something there that it just needs to be fixed and we can't do it ourselves. So we, I ask you to open our minds, our hearts, and help us to see the need that we have for you, Jesus. Help us to accept that 
Those of us that are having trouble believing or have questions and doubts, I thank you that you are working uh, with, with their doubts and their questions and you, you love them right where they are. Help them to see that, sir. We love you and appreciate you in Jesus' name. Amen. So thanks for hanging out today, guys. Be back next week for more of Starting Point. Have a great week.